Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. with podcast number 20, that is a continuation of our discussion of the First World War known as the Great War. In podcast number 19, we reviewed the overarching reasons why ultimately war would break out on the European continent. We looked at the protective alliances that were formed, such as the Triple Entente, which was Great Britain, France, and Russia, against the Triple Alliance, Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Italy, for at least the first several months of the war, and then the Ottoman Empire. And we, again, we just to, to reiterate, the alliance itself isn't the problem. It's the fact that these were secret alliances that were setting up the foundation for war to break out, because ultimately, if it won, any one country declared war on another European country, it wasn't just two countries going to war. It was a series of countries, unfortunately, that would fall like dominoes into the European conflict. We reviewed also that by 1914, 84% of all land on Earth was governed by a handful of European countries and the United States. Taken away Antarctica at 8.9% of the land under there, that left 7.1% for the rest of the world. The assassination itself, as I reviewed, would be the actual spark that would get the war started. America's position, as we reviewed, was also, as we discussed, was also initially a course of neutrality. However, President Wilson, throughout his first term, continued the silent policy of preparedness should we get drawn into the conflict. We ended with the beginning of the discussing of the fighting tactics where we reviewed the grand, so the idea of grand strategy or foreign policy strategy, how one army gets to another, gets to the battlefield, tactics, what do the armies do once they're there, how do they fight, where do they fight, and logistics, how to keep the armies fortified on the actual battlefield. This was the first colossal war in the industrial age. And sadly, as we're going to find out, the massive loss of life that would result. We ended with a brief overview of the impact of the Gatling gun, better known as the machine gun. Again, one machine gun equally 80 rifles in firepower. So we begin now this trajectory that, as I explain it, I'm going to do so in a way that chances are you'll guess what's next before I even say it, because I'm, I'm not knocking my own field, but this isn't rocket science. Oh, sure, some of those inventions were definitely rocket science, but that's well above my pay grade. But no, this, in terms of what and how human beings respond to such atrocious weapons of war, that in itself isn't really rocket science. It's more or less common sense, as we're going to find out. So imagine, as we continue now with podcast number 20, imagine that you are being forced onto the battlefield with your shiny new machine gun 
your helmet for whatever that's going to necessarily protect. You've got your jacket, you've got your gear. And as you're pretend as you're attempting to try to move into enemy territory to push them back, you're only going to go so far before you hear that deadly sound of machine gun fire. So how do you protect yourself? Even standing behind a tree is only going to work so long. In fact, you're going to run out of things pretty darn quickly to be able to stand behind because by the time you get the idea, whoops, the enemy is opening up their machine guns on me and on my comrades and arms here, the very closest spot that you're going to look for to hide behind, a pretty sure bet somebody's going to get there ahead of you and they're going to be fighting for that protective spot. So by and large, how does an army actually protect itself on the battlefield itself? You guessed it, you simply have to go down. You have to get into the ground. That's the beginning of what we would now refer to as trench warfare. The trenches of World War I, again, some of the most horrific areas that the soldiers could keep themselves protected but it was better than the alternative. While some movies can glorify the view or what looks like a safe place to hide in these trenches, the bottom line is, is more often than not, these were truly places of hell. Think about again, digging six to eight feet into the ground or more. That is an automatic natural spot for water to be able to start pooling. As soldiers are hit, some injured, some die, some die, they fall into the trenches, the stench, the odor of the de decomposing corpses, the, cor the, the corpses of animals, as they are also laying near these trenches, standing in the water for countless hours or days on end, leading to trench foot, which ultimately led many soldiers after the war or at some point during the war to have toes or their entire foot or lower leg amputated because of gangrene, sepsis, and other calamities hitting the human body through the exposure to nonstop cold water. But being in the trenches, while that can initially seem to keep you safe, when a, a series of soldiers are in a trench, what is the very thing that they're supposed to be doing that they're not doing? They're not advancing. You can't fight a war from a trench. You can try to protect your territory from an invading army, but you can't advance if you're stuck in the trenches. What's more is your enemy's doing the same thing. And it's going to end up being a stalemate if thousands of soldiers are in miles-long trenches waiting for the other to come out and attempt to advance. You're not going to win a war that way. You're not even going to win a battle that way. So for that reason, you've got to get these soldiers, you've got to get your enemies out of their trenches so that upon getting onto the ground, you can then pick them off with your machine gun. What do you have at your disposal that you can leash, unleash on the enemy to try to get them up and out of their trenches? Give you a moment to think about that. It's the only thing that you can somehow get into enemy trenches, keeping yourself safe at the same time poisonous gas. Initially, it's just going to be chlorine gas. Chlorine gas upon inhalation causes the lung cells to begin to produce mucus or liquid, which ultimately forces the person to drown. 
gas masks now, of course, an advent, you know, how, how does one counter this unfortunate advancement in weapons? You simply wear a gas mask. Now the chlorine gas doesn't make a difference because you're breathing through the gas mask. But now we up it to go from chlorine gas eventually to mustard gas, phosgen, and other gases, which are more horrific on other parts of the human body. Mustard gas, upon settling on any moist surface, begins to decompose the surface in which it landed on. So truly, these soldiers begin to start getting feeling the ideas of, or the, the effects of being chemically burned alive. So now we have to advance from face masks to, right, full body masks, body suits now, protective, complete protective body suits. But now think about having something like that on, your helmet, and then on top of that, a headpiece. Think about the way your visibility would be extremely limited now. Your ability to listen for an approaching enemy or listen for enemy fire would also be hampered. Your mobility is hampered. Nevertheless, this is war, folks. That's why William Tecumseh Sherman arguably uttered the three, the shortest, most accurate description of war ever uttered by a human being. And those three words were simply, war is hell. And folks, sadly, we are just beginning because now that the gas is beginning to pour into the trenches and the enemy soldiers throw on their body suits and face masks and headpieces in order to jump out and now start charging towards the enemy until, whoops, what was that deadly clicking sound? And the advancing army freezes. What was that clicking sound? It sounded like two pieces of metal hitting against one another inside an echo chamber. That means one of your comrades has just stepped on a bouncing Betty. A bouncing Betty is one of the most widely used landmines in world history in the 20th century. It is an extremely simple type of weapon. To, uh, to counter the myth, that landmines explode once you step on them. And it's a massive explosion taking out hundreds of soldiers at a time. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's the reason why, unfortunately, landmines were so cheap and so easy to use and so unbelievably effective. The way the Bouncing Betty landmine worked is once a soldier steps foot on the mine, on the trigger device, they hear the deadly click. The landmine is a little larger than a large can of coffee or can of a coffee canister or coffee can. The reason being is because that large metal container is what creates the echo chamber. The enemy wants you to hear your foot resting on a landmine. Because if you can hear it, so can the soldiers around you. And even if they don't hear it, they're suddenly going to realize something's wrong. When a soldier yells out, my God, or uh-oh, as a minimum, I just stepped on something. They know darn well what you stepped on. Every one of those soldiers, why they if have any empathy or sympathy at all, are clearly sympathetic to you. You know what's going through their mind. Have they been lucky so far that they haven't stepped on one? Are there landmines not only ahead of them, but also behind them? The terror that one feels realizing that truly you are walking through a minefield. But at this point, it's too late to do anything about the one soldier who has activated the landmine by pressing it down. 
as long as the soldier keeps that keeps his or her foot there, nothing will happen. And that's part of why these are so filled with terror. Because you know that your life now is measured in minutes or seconds. The landmine is not a huge explosive device that goes way up in the air. It only comes up about three to four feet, just enough to disembowel the soldier, making them bleed out within a few seconds, but not before one part of their human body is intact that they will be using more so than they've ever used in their lives up to this point, and that would be their vocal cords. So as the ex small explosion happens, disembowels the soldier as they drop to their knees, they are screaming the whole way down. Now, what are your other soldiers thinking? Do they move forward? Do they try to retreat? That's the horror of the landmines. Welcome to war in the industrial age. This is part of the reason why that these mines will be activated long after the war is over, but part of the reason why this conflict is going to drop over the duration of four years, roughly 5,000 human lives a day. Let's take the idea of the landmine, the machine gun, chlorine gas, mustard gas. Let's put all of this into all of these weapons of war into just one real world example. And that would be the Battle of Verdun, France, that went from February to December of 1916. It was a German assault on the city of Verdun that began on February 21st, 1916. The Germans, and once the French realized that they were under the assault, returned fire. The Germans and the French were firing at times more than 100,000 shells from over 1,400 guns and cannons per minute at times of high increased intensity of the conflict. The French, realizing that their soldiers are dropping like flies as the Germans realize the same thing, they simply pour more and more soldiers into the citadel to defend the territory, turning Verdun truly into an unbelievable slaughterhouse. Sadly, the Germans did the same thing. By December, both sides lost more than 700,000 soldiers. 700,000. That's tens of thousands more than the United States lost in the entire American Civil War, which lasted four years. This was just 10 months, losing roughly 70,000 lives a month for a total of well over a half a million. Meanwhile, while that conflict is taking place, that battle is waging over at the Battle of the Somme, which began in July of 1916, the British hurled north of 1.6 million shells at the German lines in just one week of that battle. If you'd like to hear, read more and learn more about these specific types of battles, I don't want to bog the podcast down by analyzing battle for battle, we get the idea of just how horrific this conflict is. But if this type of 
information is of interest to you, I do recommend you read the recently published book called Conventional and Unconventional War by Tom Mikaitis. He's a professor at DePaul University, actually was a professor of mine at one point, and you can read this information specifically on pages 107 to 172. While that kind of intense fighting is taking place on land, things are no less no less are any easier out on the open waters because of the way the uh, allies and Axis powers will now start engaging in submarine warfare. World War I U-boat could carry roughly 35 men and 12 torpedoes and travel underwater for roughly two hours at a time. But while that submarine was down, the Entente and the Alliance powers were always leery that, a, that periscope could surface at any moment. And chances are, if you saw the periscope of an enemy sub, it was most likely too late to even attempt to retaliate. Not that they didn't try, but by that point, it usually was too late. This is part of the reason why the Lusitania was sunk in May of 1915. Over 1,100 people died on board with well over 100 Americans also dropping to their death. The Lusitania itself is not really in that deep of water and can be visible uh, during daylight because it's so shallow where it sank off the coast of County Cork in Ireland. But Americans were killed. Even though it was not an American ship, it left an American port with hundreds of Americans on board. Why wouldn't President Wilson have done anything about that sinking? Why wouldn't he have declared war on Germany? As it was a German submarine that sank the Allied ship. Because President Wilson knew that if that investigation drew international inspectors to the holes, to the hull of that ship, down into the deep holds, they would find out that the Americans' course of neutrality wasn't actually neutral at all. We were helping the Entente powers. We were helping Britain, France, and Russia fight the Allied powers. As a result, we were conspiring, conspiring with Germany's enemy. Therefore, they took it upon themselves in May of 1915 to down that beautiful luxury liner. Initially, Germany did agree to back down when it saw the when it saw through the periscope that these were passenger ships rather than cargo or military ships. But that hiatus didn't last long, as Germany would eventually declare unrestricted warfare not long after. Where is America standing at this time? What is public opinion? Despite the fact with the Lusitania sinking, where are we standing with this? Initially, we still wanted and encouraged and supported our American president and Congress to continue the course of neutrality. However, public opinion would shift with an intercepted note that was sent by the Germans to the Mexican government in March of 1917 in what became known as the Zimmerman Note or the Zimmerman Telegram. The timing was perfect as Black Jack Pershing was chasing Pancho Villa after his attack on the small town of Columbus, New Mexico. This left the eastern seaboard wide open to German attack 
which actually happened on Black Tom Island in July of 1916. It was a series of explosions planted by the Germans to destroy any kind of shipments that we can send, we could send to the British. The explosion was felt all the way to the New York harbors and even damaged Lady Liberty's torch, which was closed to visitors thereafter. America was being pulled into the war, whether we liked it or not. Our ability to support the enemy of Germany and not have the Germans and Austro-Hungarians find out was a pipe dream. So because of that, now America was increasingly alarmed that Germany was trying to provoke Mexico to attack America on its southern border. Now, you listeners might wonder, as my students do in the classroom, why would Mexico want to get involved in this European conflict? Well, it's a great question. And ultimately, what led them, the Mexican government, to at least consider the offer from Germany was the following. Germany's offer in that the prime minister's note to the Mexican government was the following. You, Mexico, move your forces to the southern border, to your northern border, which will force the American government to employ most of its army to its southern border. Meanwhile, Germany will wipe out France and eventually Great Britain, take out Russia, and then end the war with the victorious Allied power, Allied victory of Germany, the Austro-Hungarian government, and then Italy. Upon success of that conflict, Germany would then assist Mexico in an invasion through its northern border into the United States. And what would be the prize for Mexico? All of the land that was ceded by the Mexican government at the conclusion of the Mexican-American War, modern-day New Mexico, Texas, and most of California, would then be returned to Mexico when a peace treaty would be written up between the United States and the Mexican and German alliance. It unsettled Americans to find out about that. Meanwhile, back on the open waters of the Atlantic, more and more American freighters were being sunk. But yet um, the United States wasn't committing to the conflict, especially in 1916. And one might wonder what was President Wilson waiting for? And the reason that shocks some students when I say this, because it sounds so arbitrary, surface or superficial, is the fact that Wilson wasn't going to do anything in 1916. 1916 was an election year and Wilson was up for re-election. And part of his campaign slogan for an additional one more term was that he kept American soldiers home. He kept America's sons and husbands and fathers at home. So with that, he is swept into a second term. He takes the oath of office on March 4th, 1917, and 32 days later, he commits the United States to entering the war on the Entente side with Britain and France. What about Russia, you say? Russia at this point is pulling out of the war as it's beginning its own civil war led by the newly returned Vladimir Lenin to start, which would become known as the Communist Revolution. 
So Russia is no longer assisting France and Great Britain, which is part of the reason why the United States determined that it was in its best interest to join the conflict. So the United States enters the First World War, as it's already been raging now for years. The economy, therefore, mobilized for war production. The War Industries Board was formed by President Wilson and Congress in order to do things like control price levels so that inflation didn't skyrocket out of control. It also took Henry Ford and Ransom E. Olds' idea of the assembly line and standardized parts to begin to produce weapons and other, arm and other armaments and material for the war effort through standardized production and mass production of these standardized parts. Future President Herbert Hoover was tapped by President Wilson to form the Food Administration Board, which was similar to the War Industries Board, but it focused on civilians doing what they could on their own or as a family to assist in the war effort. Try as hard as one can to avoid buying fruits and vegetables at the supermarket, rather plant your own garden at home and don't just call it a typical vegetable garden, it would become a victory garden. Beef and wheat would be abstained from on certain days of the week. Because we were at war now with Germany in the Austro-Hungarians, we now were renaming some of our food items, such as the Hamburg, hamburger, named of course after the city Hamburg, Germany, was simply becoming a meat patty. Frankfurters off of Frankfurt, Germany, would now become simply hot dogs. And the name, of course, would stick long after the war. We'll do this again in the Second World War. We will do this again in other conflicts all the way up to the War on Terror after the 9-11 attacks. And one might ask, well, what were we buying that was of Middle Eastern or Asian descent that had a name like that on our menu? Ironically enough, nothing like that. Rather, we got angry with a country of France for not assisting the United States initially in our early campaigns in the War on Terror. We were so angry with France, which will be discussed way down in future podcasts, we were so angry with France that we named French fries on fast food menus to Freedom Fries. So again, this idea of renaming food items on the menu starts here with the First World War. Will continue long after, though. Women and minorities, how did they fare with this ongoing conflict? Well, now that the men, primarily between the ages of 18 and 30, were being drafted or volunteered for the war effort, those jobs were now available. African Americans would start migrating north for the first time in mass since the end of the American Civil War. Many also would enlist in the army. But that doesn't mean everybody in the United States was supporting the war effort. We're always going to have those individuals that will criticize the president's and Congress's action. Therefore, to handle rebellion and dissent, the Espionage Act was temporarily passed, which fined and or imprisoned people for, for being accused and proven that to take actions to disrupt the war effort. The Sedition Act was also temporarily passed, that could also fine or imprison people for speaking and or writing against the war effort. 
Now, my listeners, especially international listeners, that may surprise you thinking, well, I thought the United States was always about freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And yes, while that's true, when we, the United States is at war or any country is at war, the worst thing that a country can do for its own citizens fighting to defend their country is to present the idea that they're not appreciated, that they're risking their lives actually isn't supported by commoners back at home. The last thing that a soldier wants to read on a foreign battlefield is that people in the United States are criticizing them and saying we shouldn't be involved in the war to begin with. There's time for debate, but when our soldiers are being drafted and hundreds of thousands volunteering to go over, well, that is not the time that they want to read about dissent among the ranks. So between the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, these were two ways that the American government was beginning to start controlling the public reception of the war effort. American troops would be recruited through the Selective Service Act of 1917 with the 1st Division's landing in France in June of 1917. While almost every conflict in American history has two or more people that rose up in the ranks of general and are notorious for their leadership, bravery, organization skills, you name it, the First World War, largely because of the short duration of the conflict in terms of our involvement, we arrive in June of 1917 Less than a year and a half later, the conflict comes to an end. What happens then for leadership from the American side? That's going to be led by none other than John J. Pershing, who goes under the nickname, of course, Blackjack Pershing. Why would a man, man named John J. Pershing earned the name Blackjack Pershing. Why is he, to date, only one of two six-star generals? For that, we'll begin with the next podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what we discussed today, please go to my website or whatever venue you're listening through. Please leave me a review. Any questions at all, never hesitate to email. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. 